0: listener supported WNYC Studios
1: This is the takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry in Pretendinga Vega. 6 trillion dollars. That's the bottom line of the 2022 federal budget that the Biden administration proposed on Friday. Included in it are the two infrastructure proposals that President Biden has already begun to outline for the public in his American Jobs Plan and American Families Plan. Speaking in Cleveland on Thursday, the president once again detailed what he's hoping to accomplish through these spending measures.
0: This is already clear. We're on the right track. The American Rescue Plan laid a strong foundation for a new economy that brings everybody along. But it's just a first step. We're going to build on the incentive and incredible progress that we've made and set America on a sustainable path to faster, more inclusive economic growth. We have to start investing in ourselves again and the American people again.
1: But for Republican lawmakers, there's another number included in this budget proposal that is likely to draw widespread condemnation. $1.8 trillion. That's the projected size of the federal deficit in 2022 under this plan. And according to the New York Times, debt as a share of the U.S. economy would reach record highs by 2024 if this budget is enacted. Meanwhile, some members of the GOP are trying to negotiate with the Biden administration on infrastructure spending. But the $928 billion plan put out by Republicans this week was quickly criticized by Senate Democrats, who said the GOP is just setting President Biden up to fail. And the partisan divide wasn't just on display this week when it came to the federal budget. On Tuesday, the president hosted the family of George Floyd to commemorate the somber anniversary of the day Officer Chauvin murdered George Floyd. The images were important, but the Justice in Policing Act named for Floyd that Biden had promised to sign by May 25th is still stalled in the Senate. There were, however, some historic moments in Washington this week. Civil rights attorney Kristen Clark was confirmed to lead the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, making her the first Black woman to serve in that role.
2: I, Kristen Clark, I, Kristen Clark, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I will support and
3: defend, that I will support and defend, the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution
1: of the United States. And on Wednesday, White House Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre became the first openly gay woman to lead the White House press briefing and the first Black woman to do so in roughly 30 years.
2: I appreciate the historic nature, I really do. Uh, but I, I believe that uh, you know, behind, being behind this podium uh, being in this room, uh,
1: being in this building, is not about one person. It's about, you know, what we do on behalf of the American people. Um, clearly, the president believes in, in representation matters, um, and I appreciate him giving me this opportunity, uh, and it's a, it's another reason why I think we are all so proud that this is the most diverse administration in history. It was a very busy week in the nation's capital, and we're going to start today by walking you through it all. Here with me now is Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Heather, thanks for coming back on the show.
4: Great to be back.
1: Also with us is Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Maya, welcome back to you as well.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Heather, let's start with you. The Biden administration is putting forward a $6 trillion budget. (laughs) What's in it?
4: Well, a lot of the stuff we've seen before, so that infrastructure package is a big part of this budget, both the physical infrastructure on the roads and the pipes and getting everyone internet, as well as what they call the care package, uh, which would hugely expand affordable child care and elder care and paid parental leave in the United States. Uh, There's also a really big increase in what's known as discretionary spending. So the president is proposing a lot of spending on education, research, Transitioning the United States to a more climate-friendly economy. So it's about a 16% increase in non-defense spending and a one7 so a much more modest increase in defense spending. The big, big takeaway here is it would be a lot of money next year, in particular a $6 trillion budget and running close to a $2 trillion deficit. So meaning we're not paying from quite a bit of that spending next year. They're painting it, the administration painting it as like a down payment on America's future, getting us on the right track. Obviously, though, there's a lot of concerns about spending money we don't actually have.
1: Okay, I want to push into one aspect of that. Now, you said they're getting internet for everyone. And I feel like 30 years ago in America, we would have seen states and governors excited about federal spending that would bring that kind of critical infrastructure to their communities. Maya, are we expecting pushback not only in Congress, but also at the state level from governors who would actually benefit from this kind of spending?
3: Well, it's interesting. I think we can absolutely expect pushback in Congress, and we've already seen that with anything that um, the Biden administration has put forth that really has a dollar sign attached to it. The immediate response, particularly from Republicans in Congress has been, this is way too expensive. This will bankrupt the country in the name of of liberal policy. And it's just not a viable path forward. And I think we've seen that already in the giant gap. I believe it was last valued at about $1.5 trillion in difference between what Democrats have proposed and what Republicans came back with. Yet on the state level, uh, the need is a little bit different. I think um, what we saw around the um, pandemic stimulus payments of the last round, a lot of state and local officials were saying, you know what, we actually really do need this money. And uh, many, uh, many Republican leaders were willing to accept it there, too. Um, just because the need is, is very different and people were really hurting, I think, on the state and local level in a way that governors were able to see much differently. So how this now translates to infrastructure, what this means now for this next round of, of debate on what exactly infrastructure means, how we define it, and um, as Heather mentioned, of course, how we pay for it. It certainly, I think, will will shape the contours of, of how different leaders on different levels will respond to it.
1: Heather. Let's come back to the pay for it piece that Maya ended on there. Maybe this is an indication of why my credit cards look the way they do. But really, who cares if we can't pay for it in the short term? Isn't the real issue here about stoking the economy with this kind of spending and also dealing with all of the deferred maintenance on our national infrastructure?
4: You make a great point. Obviously, many of the programs that are being proposed are hugely popular, such as paid parental leave, finally getting the United States to have 12 weeks of paid parental leave, making those critical infrastructure investments. Many of us, as, as you drive around parts of the country, feel those nicks in the road and those see those bridges that could really use a repair every day, not to mention some of these pipes in the ground. I was on the website recently trying to figure out. If the line, water line to my house is an old lead pipe or not, which is a very scary situation for anyone. And so, but. There are costs associated with, with spending more money than you have, similar to your to a credit card bill, where if somebody isn't balancing it every month, they are paying interest. And the United States uh, is borrowing money from other countries right now in order to fund this, and we are uh, ultimately going to have to pay interest on it. And I think the big concern from an economic perspective is nobody saying that we're going to hit that critical point where we can't borrow anymore next year or even five years down the line. But there is going to be some number that we can't borrow past or that it becomes much more expensive to borrow, similar to somebody who hasn't paid their credit card bill suddenly sees that interest rate, that borrowing rate, jump up over time. And so that's why there you see, even in the Democratic Party, some voices who are warning, does it really need to be quite this much? I mean, the headline on the New York Times, this front page this morning is the Biden administration seeking spending levels not seen since World War. Or two, so we are talking about a huge, huge uh, amount of spending, and that's really the debate that's going to come down for a lot of moderate Democrats. They won't, they will vote for a number of these programs, but do you vote for it all in one fell swoop, or do you do something that looks a little bit more like, uh, you know, small chunks?
1: The World War II discourse is instructive here because it is post-World War II America that becomes the global power we understand ourselves to be, in large part because of that spending and, of course, also because of the massive war that took us into that space. But Maya, I'm also thinking that in that moment, there was a lot of partisan unity, which is to say that Democrats ran the board at that time. That is not the situation we're in now. These very slim majorities are not what Roosevelt was facing. So is there any possibility that this can, in fact, pass through the government we have right now?
3: I think you make a great point by mentioning the slim majority here, because even then, that has gotten in the way of Democrats' ability to really um, push through the agenda that they have in place and I think really what they'll be reliant upon is reconciliation and sort of bringing in that third party to be able to push through um, what they really with well, the terms of this of this spending that they really do want to see come to fruition. And um, it's very clear that Democrats, especially in Congress, have gotten much more comfortable with um, leaving Republicans behind and getting these bills across. Certainly um, the American Rescue Plan is I think a really good example of that. And the point that that Biden, the Biden administration has been making is that they're trying really, um, they consider this point in this time in America, post pandemic, post economic uh, uh, downturn, which we're still very much in, Um, as one that would sort of wake up both parties to really the urgency of getting some serious spending passed that hasn't really crystallized yet. But I'm wondering, um, and what I'm looking for, and especially in my reporting, is whether or not they'll be able to hammer that point home so that they won't have to exactly pull out sort of the nuclear option um, to get this all through.
1: So, um, Heather, in my household, there are... um there's two big anxieties about what's not in there, right? One is the Medicare age being lowered to 60 is not in there. And for my, um, my college age daughter, the $15 minimum wage is not in there and she's working minimum wage this summer and not happy to see that that is not in there. So why aren't some of those big pieces that we'd heard on the campaign trail, why aren't they in this you know, enormous package?
4: Yep, that's an excellent question. I would throw in two more to that list that are kind of surprising that we're on the campaign trail and are not part of this big bu- first budget package, and that is uh, there's no student debt relief or, or student debt cancellation, oh. even up to that first $10,000 that was talked about a lot in the on the campaign trail. And similar to you you mentioned not lowering the Medicaid a, a Medicare age, uh, also no public option. So on the campaign trail, the president uh was was very adamant about wanting to to push some sort of national uh federal Public option for health insurance, and we don't see that as part of this as well. The White House keeps saying, and you can, that oh, we still support these; that they would be sort of after this 2022 package. This, these would be the next wave of things, or that they could potentially move simultaneously. I think we've seen that Congress is not good at multitasking. There's a lot here they're already supposed to do with these infrastructure bills uh, that were supposed to be the first one they had hoped would pass by Memorial Day weekend. That hasn't happened. So I I think the way I would read this is it's interesting what fell out when the when the priorities had to be written on paper. It was interesting what did not make it. And while they're still giving lip service to these items I, 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 and are still on the the dream list for President Biden, I think reality has set in that it, it, you, the Democrats probably only have one one or two more big bills that they can pass, and these items do not appear to be on that list.
1: So. Let's go here to, to the other kinds of things that either were or were not happening in D.C. this week. And Maya, this was the the moment when we were supposed to have on the president's desk ready for signature the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. But it didn't happen. Has there been any movement and is it going to happen?
3: There has been movement, but Our ability to really track or even quantify the progress on this bill has been extremely difficult. We know that Senators uh, Booker, Tim Scott, as well as Representative uh, Karen Bass have been in conversations now for over a month um, in hammering out the details and trying to come out with some form of a of a bill, um, a police reform bill that will make all parties happy. And what that means, and what that translates to, particularly to activists, is a much wa- a much more watered down bill. The big sticking point here is on the policy of qualified immunity, which would, if passed, um, in this bill um allow police officers to be individually sued if they violate someone's personal civil rights and so that has huge implications for use of force um and for officers engagements with individuals and members of of communities particularly members of the black community it gives uh, citizens the opportunity or the legal possibility To actually file suit against individual officers republicans have already said pretty much that they're absolutely not in favor of that they think that it's a bridge too far to make that a part of this uh national piece of legislation but i think that democrats really are trying to pass some version of that that actually allows people to really feel like they have a role in reforming police and reforming policing practices. So whether or not this actually gets passed, we know that that time is running out. They really have now about two or three weeks. I think that Tim Scott said if they don't have a bill on Biden's desk by um, the middle of June, they will have to sort of recalibrate and realize that this is not perhaps, you know, the path forward on reform. So it certainly remains to be seen, but um, I think everyone is now looking at this group of, of lawmakers and kind of encouraging them to hurry up here and really come out with, with a, a bill that will make
1: everyone happy. Oh, it won't make everyone happy, but I get it, right? Yeah. So, I want to <laughs> I want to dig in on on this for just one more second, Maya, cuz closely aligned obviously to the question of civil rights violations and policing are the is the much broader set of questions around US civil rights, and we saw Kristen Clark, um, who I have known and respected for so many years, narrowly win confirmation to lead the Justice Department civil rights division this week. She's going to be the first Black woman in that role. What do you think will be her agenda in the context of the DOJ?
3: So, I think really looking at, at Clark's record with the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights kind of gives us a really great blueprint for what we could probably expect to see her doing on day one. I think you know her work in voting rights was particularly important over the last few years, and that's something where the Civil Rights Division may come in as well. Hate crimes, of course, that was another thing that she was also very instrumental in with the Lawyers Committee that I imagine DOJ in the Civil Rights Division will also be paying a really close uh, close attention to. And then, of course, there's the investigation that um, DOJ has already launched in the pattern of practice investigations of very high-profile police departments, namely the Minneapolis Police Department. I think that as the findings of that investigation start to come out, and really as DOJ really starts to uh, dig in on this and other police departments across the country, we can expect to see Kristen Clark really being the face of those investigations and understanding sort of how police departments across this country have operated that have led to these really high profile shootings, um, particularly of African Americans. And a lot of people are waiting to hear and see more about the Minneapolis Police Department in the context of George Floyd's murder. So it'll really be interesting. And I think for a lot of people, very exciting to see Kristen Clark be able to deliver that message and kind of push things forward there
1: absolutely heather let me come to you on a on another issue which is actually in the budget but feels to me like it's connected to these broader questions as well of economic social racial justice and civil rights and that's housing and we know that one of the sort of um, surprising effects of this shutdown the you know the quarantine has been just massively rising housing prices around the country What is the budget plan for affordable housing and assistance from the government around that?
4: You're absolutely right that there is a lot of reason to be very nervous about the housing market and housing affordability even before the pandemic. Uh, we had about 11 million families in the United States paying more than half their income on rent, and I think it's it's likely that we that could worsen this summer. Those protections for not getting evicted are set to expire at the end of June, and as you noted, the housing prices have gone up, and at the moment rent prices are not showing up in in the inflation data and the and the price rising data, but I, I think there's a high likelihood we could see that happen in, in the coming months. The the plan is very ambitious. It's a, it's been it was a big part of that second infrastructure, first and second infrastructure package to do several hundred billion dollars more towards affordable housing. That includes building additional affordable housing as well as retrofitting some of the existing housing stock, a lot of which was built in the 50s and 60s and 70s and needs to be desperately upgraded. So, you know, there's definitely a lot here, whether it will be enough or whether it will move fast enough, even if this were were past the summer and we talked about the struggles of Congress multitasking, even if this first emphasis structure package passes this summer. Uh, is that going to be fast enough to alleviate some of these rent concerns or help prevent people from getting evicted right now? I would like to be more optimistic than I am on that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that one's tough. Um, Maya, on a quick final note, I have to say that I did get more than a little bit of black girl joy out of watching the historic moment when White House Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre became the first openly gay woman and the first black woman in about 30 years to lead the White House press briefing. I mean, was that just the best or what?
3: Absolutely. And I think that, that Black Girl Joy is no small thing. Black women have played a key role in electing this administration. So it's important to also have representation in who's delivering the message out of the White House.
1: I'm going to take that. I'm going to take Black Girl Joy is no small thing. Maya King <laughs> is politics reporter at Politico and Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you both for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having Thanks me. so much.
1: During the past year, the pandemic revealed many of the cracks in our national foundation, from racial health inequities to uneven Wi-Fi capacities, but perhaps none more critical than the utter lack of an infrastructure to ensure all families have access to quality, affordable childcare. And this is a burden shouldered disproportionately by women who remain primary caregivers in many families and make up the majority of the childcare workforce. One statistic gives us a glimpse at the scale of the childcare crisis. Between February and April 2020, 4.2 million women left or lost jobs. Two million have yet to return. The American Rescue Plan that President Joe Biden signed into law in March sought to remedy this, at least in part, by expanding the childcare tax credit. And while it's not a full-scale solution, it is a powerful tool for many families. Here with me to discuss what this credit will mean for families is Dorian Warren. Dorian is the co-president of Community Change and co-founder of the Economic Security Project. It's so good to have you with us.
5: Hi, Melissa. It's so great to be with you. I'm so glad to hear your voice. I've been listening all week to you, guest hosting. I'm a regular listener, but I've been regularly tuning into you this week. So it's great to be with you.
1: We should probably tell listeners that we've also been friends for 21 years so that like this enthusiasm is (laughs) is part of that. I wasn't gonna ask you like
5: that, but okay, yes. Hi, hi, friend. Hi, sis.
1: (laughs) Hi, friend. Hi. And so one of the things I know about you because we've been friends forever and ever is that you and your wife welcomed your first child just eight months ago in the midst of the pandemic. And so although this is the work you've been doing, it also got real Mm. personal for you. So tell me what you think about this child care tax credit and how, um, what kind of impact it might have.
5: Well, yes, thank you, Melissa. I am a new daddy, and that means I change a lot of diapers. And um, diapers cost money. It adds up. You know, It's like two bucks a day, basically, for diapers. And why that's important is because a lot of people missed it, Melissa. But with the stroke of a pen, President Biden delivered what's probably the most ambitious anti-poverty legislation in generations. Um, and particularly something in the American Rescue Plan called the Child Tax Credit. Now, a lot of folks don't know what this is. This was something that actually passed over 20 years ago. It was in 2001 under the Bush tax cut that this little provision by, frankly, grassroots activists who have been organizing around it got snuck into that tax cut. And then all of a sudden, here we are 20 years later, after the leadership of many champions in Congress, I'm thinking of Representative Rosa DeLauro, for instance, who's been on this from the late 90s. There's this new program called the Child Tax Credit that got expanded. So let me say what it, what it means. It means that um, if you are a parent and you have a child, um, you will get roughly $3,000 a credit in terms of your taxes um, for each child ages 16 to 17. And for kids under six, that's $3,600. Now, what does that really mean? It means $250 or $300 a month per child. Mm. And it's something called fully refundable, meaning, Melissa, here's the key. There's no work requirement to accept this benefit. Mm. So if you didn't make income or let's say you made $8,000 a year um, last year, you're going to get $250 or $300 a month, no strings attached. Let me say that again, no strings attached. To pay for that's some you diapers need for diapers for food for whatever it is you think you need for your child.
1: Okay, so you've articulated why it matters to families with children. Why should I care about this if I don't have kids?
5: <laughs> yes, but let me just say it's 39 million households, Melissa, covering 88 percent of children who benefit. What we do know is that half of um, people surveyed don't even know about this. So, but but your question is why should you care? That that is the question, because it's really you have to move to a, why is this a public good that benefits me, even if I don't have kids? And here's what we know from research. Investing in ending child poverty means everybody benefits and in, in this way. It improves maternal health. Um, and this, we have some evidence of this from Canada's Child Allowance, where they've been studying the effects of this for years when they did something similar. Because, you know, they're a little ahead of us on this. Um, <laughs> but it also means, like, think of it this way, Melissa. Child poverty in America cost us somewhere between $800 billion to a trillion dollars a year in lost economic output. So we are actually not, (laughs) we're making the wrong kinds of investments by investing in child poverty. We're making that choice to say, we're cool with child poverty in in the richest country in the history of the world. But when you say, I'm gonna invest to make sure there is an income floor for children, um, no matter their race, no matter Mm -hmm. income, that actually benefits us in the long term because there's something like an eight to one return um, on societal benefits. So a hundred billion dollar investment, produces $800 billion for the country um, further down the road, whether it's, frankly, like better employment outcomes or better Mm -hmm. mental health or better physical health. We this is all we have the social science on this. And there's there's no reason why we can't garner the political will to say this should be the new social contract in this country.
1: So so as you're talking about sort of these big issues of, of how it um, improves the economy overall, there's one specific sector, right, connected to that, and that is childcare workers themselves yes. who are often folks who are working full-time but still living below or very close to the poverty line while trying to provide this profoundly necessary care. Is there anything uh, in the pipeline or in this current legislation that assists on that side of the child care question
5: we have relegated child care to an individualized issue for most americans for too long it is a public good and so there was a little bit of a down payment melissa on providing high quality access to child care for everybody in the american rescue plan there's about 40 billion dollars but 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 there is 700 billion dollars on the table in pending legislation that would actually reconstitute, so to speak, reconstruct our entire childcare system in America so that particularly low income parents, black and brown parents have access to childcare. And as you pointed out, childcare providers and especially the teachers can get a living wage it it makes no sense it just makes no sense if you work full-time caring for other people's children so that they can go to work or they can live their lives why should you have to live in poverty this is the most important work we can do as a country is investing in the care of our children and our families and so there this is exciting that there is potentially almost a trillion dollars on the table that would invest in childcare for the first time in this country. We almost did it in the early seventies under Nixon. He killed it. This is our next opportunity to do it.
1: You have actually made me feel excited about public policy this morning, like <laughs> something could actually happen that would make a big difference. As always, a pleasure to talk with Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change and co-founder of the Economic Security Project. And again, just to be completely honest, Dorian and I also co-create and co-host the System Check Podcast.
2: NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more.
1: On May 31st, 1921, a violent white mob in Tulsa, Oklahoma, enacted a deadly and destructive massacre that nearly destroyed the thriving black community of Greenwood.
2: On May 31st, 1921, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood, neighbors of Tulsa, the neighborhood I felt asleep in that night was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, Humanity, Heritage, and my family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me.
1: That's 107-year-old Viola Fletcher, one of the few living survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre, testifying before Congress on May 19th in an effort to secure reparations for survivors and descendants of the massacre. According to the 2001 Race Riot Commission report, white mobs killed as many as 300 people and destroyed more than 1,200 homes and businesses.
2: The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men sin being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day.
1: Mrs. Fletcher testified alongside two other survivors, her 100-year-old brother, Hughes Van Ellis, and 106-year-old Leslie Benningfield Randall.
2: We were told they just dumped the, the dead bodies into the river. Uh, I I remember running outside of our house. I just passed dead bodies. It wasn't a pity sight. I still see it today in my mind, a hundred years later.
1: Van Ellis, a World War II veteran, told lawmakers that survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre never received any compensation for what was taken from them, and that their efforts in the court system so far have been dismissed.
2: We were made to feel that our struggle was unworthy of justice, that we were less valued than Rights, that we weren't fully Americans. We were shown that in the United States, not all men were equal under law. We were shown that when black voices called out for justice, no one cared.
1: For more on the history and legacy of the Tulsa Race Massacre, 100 years later, we're joined by Professor Carlos K. Hill, the Regents Professor and Chair of the African and African American Studies Department at the University of Oklahoma, and author of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, a photographic history. Carlos, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me, Melissa.
1: I wanna start in Greenwood before the massacre. Tell me about this thriving community where this little seven-year-old girl goes to bed feeling safe.
0: Circa 1921, Tulsa's Greenwood District was one of the most affluent Black communities in the country. And part of the reason the Greenwood District is known today is because of Booker T. Washington uh, in 1913, referring to the Greenwood District as the Negro Wall Street of America. And what Booker T. Washington was attempting to do was to tilt black Americans eyes toward Tulsa, toward Greenwood and help them to understand that the affluence that uh, black people had had accumulated uh, in the Greenwood district, that was possible for them as well. And so Booker T. Washington wanted African-Americans to understand Greenwood as a kind of shining symbol of what was possible in Jim Crow America if it could happen in Tulsa black Americans could possibly have a different reality in Jim Crow America. And so when the mob attacked Greenwood and destroyed Mm -hmm. its homes and businesses, it wasn't just those homes and businesses that were attempting to be destroyed. It was the idea that black people could could prosper in these United States, particularly in, in in the segregated United States that was America in 1921. And so that also was under attack, under threat. But luckily, fortunately uh, for us, the community rebuilt. Uh, that idea was revived. Um, and today it still lives on, uh, in the words of Mother Randall, uh, in the words of Mother Fletcher, as well as Hugh Van Ellis.
1: That point that uh, that Washington had turned the eyes of Black America to Tulsa, that this was standing as this shining beacon then the destruction, the massacre there in Greenwood becomes a kind of collective lynching, right? Because lynching is never just about violence against the one body. It is always also an act of terrorism. So what I heard you say was that this also was meant to terrorize, to blot out the notion of this kind of black success for black folks throughout the country.
0: Absolutely. Lynching revolves around terrorism terrorism as a form of social control. And with lynching, it's a form of racial, social control. I have often referred to what occurred on May 31st and June 1st at minimum as a massacre, but it could be framed as a community lynching. Uh, With lynching, the history of lynching, a classic lynching really typically involves an individual. An individual or their family is the target. With Greenwood, the target of the violence was the community. The goal was not just to destroy, but also to expel Black people. Those 11,000 residents uh, who had built Greenwood and in and, 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 and approximately 15 years into the Negro Wall Street of America or Black Wall Street, the goal was to expel them from the community. And in writing a photographic history of the race massacre, I came across numerous photographs that helped me to tell that story. One photograph in particular uh, was turned, transformed into a postcard. And the caption on that postcard read, Uh, running the Negro out of Tulsa, that photograph captured for me what was in the hearts and the minds of whites as they burned, as they looted, as they destroyed uh, this historic community. It certainly was a massacre, but I think you could also make a, a compelling argument that it was a community lynching and an attempted expulsion of Tulsa's Black residents.
1: Professor Hill, tell us more about the photographs that you found and the story they tell.
0: One of the things that I discovered in beginning my research, uh, deep research on the race massacre was not only is it the deadliest attack, single attack on a black community in American history, it may be the most photographed instance of anti-black violence in American history. In um, beginning to talk to the community members about this history and talking to them in ways about this history that they revealed to me that this was, in fact, a massacre, trying to piece together um, you know, this history and, and how to you know, compellingly um, offer it up to people who have no idea about the scale and the scope of it. I discovered these photographs, and I couldn't look away. Uh, I just could not believe what I was seeing in these photographs, a 35 block area, completely destroyed in less than 24 hours. And so it became incumbent upon me to try to figure out a way to leverage those, uh, those photographs to tell the story, not, not the story that the white mob wanted to tell in documenting it and creating these photographs, but in fact, the story that Viola Fletcher told in Congress Uh, Hugh Van Ellis told in Congress just last week, Mother Randall told the story of how this community was viciously attacked and in less than 24 hours destroyed. I think the photographs bring that home in ways that even words uh, can't. And so it became my mission to figure out a way to use documents, photographs that were created by the mob, but that, you know, 100 years later could potentially, if paired alongside of uh, oral history accounts from survivors, could tell a different story, could be recontextualized to help people understand just the scale and scope of, uh, of of what occurred. And so the photographic history contains about 175 photographs, about 130, 140 of them, or, you know, depict the massacre And another 30 or 40 of them depict um, or, or or help us to understand who survivors were. Help us to understand their stories. And so, uh, I wrote that book in a moment where, or began to write that book in a moment where the Watchman uh, was not a part of our conversation. Uh, Lovecraft Country wasn't a part of our conversation. Mm. Imagining a world where you had to convince people that this was a massacre, and so those photographs became Exhibit A and the argument for why, at minimum, we have to talk about this as a massacre. And I hope, to the extent that the photographs and the oral histories uh, bring that to the fore, I hope that that was accomplished.
1: Your point, that it was the mob itself that were taking these photographs, that they had transformed them into postcards, and were proud of these actions, goes to the very heart of what is also talked about in the uh, 2001 commission report, now 20 years old, that says not one of these criminal acts with then or ever has been prosecuted or punished by government at any level and that no government at any level offered any resistance at the time that it was happening. Is there any possibility now that any measure of justice is possible for survivors and descendants?
0: Absolutely, there's a lot of room for justice and accountability. Although white the, the white men and boys and women who perpetrated this atrocity on the community are, have, have long died, uh, the city of Tulsa is still here. The state of Oklahoma is still here. Those entities aided and abetted and were complicit in the violence. And I'll give you just two examples. Rather than disarm whites uh, who began to shoot Um, and and attempt to kill black men who had come downtown um, to to protect Dick Rowland. What did local authorities do? They weaponized the mob. They gave them orders to, to kill and detain black men who they believe were in rebellion. That was number one. Number two, rather than prevent whites from invading the community, the local authorities invaded the community with them. Rather than support the community in the aftermath and rebuilding, the city attempts to impede and actually prevent the community from rebuilding. Again, um, rather than provide restitution and reparations uh, for victims, uh, for survivors, uh, for descendants of this history, the city initially said that it would and then days later reneged. And so if the race massacre is not just the deadliest attack on a black community in American history, it also represents the liquidation of intergenerational black wealth. And so today there can be a historic investment into the community, an investment that has never happened, but should have.
1: So bring me to Tulsa today, to those blocks, to historic Greenwood. What is life there right now?
0: It's certainly not uh, the Black Wall Street uh, of 1921. Uh, But I would argue that uh, the Greenwood District, uh, Black Wall Street remains a symbol of Black excellence. What we have to remember is what made Greenwood special is not um, the buildings, not the businesses, it's the people. And the people are as tenacious, as gritty, as resourceful as Black people were in 1921 uh, and today in Tulsa in, in 2021, uh, but what we've had with the community is a series of, of efforts, attempts by the city um, to um, you know to harm this community, uh, beginning in the 1960s and 70s with urban removal. Uh, the The Greenwood District, uh, over time, has been gutted, and today uh, there are very few. Uh, black owned businesses and even black landholders in the greenwood mm-hmm. district and so when 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 community members talk about uh, the urban removal policies of the 1960s and 70s that is what they're referring to and in many cases uh, completed the work that the mm-hmm. white mob began uh, in 1921 and so greenwood of today is not the greenwood of 1921 but The bones are still good. The people uh, are still pretty as as resourceful. Black Wall Street, despite the fact that it's not the same as it was in 1921, still is a symbol of black excellence. That symbol that Booker T. Washington uh, more than 100 years ago spoke of.
1: And I have to say, like the the um the the post Katrina New Orleanian in me jumps up um with joy and recognition at the idea that community is about much more than just the buildings. It is always about about the people and the spirit of community that exists in that space and there is still room for justice in Tulsa. Carlos K. Hill is Regent's professor and chair of the African and African American Studies Department at the University of Oklahoma and author of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, a photographic history. Professor Hill, thank you for joining us.
0: And Melissa, thank you for having me.
1: That's all we have for y'all today. I've really enjoyed being with you all week. Now, before I go, I wanna give a shout out to this extraordinary crew who put the show together daily. Our producers are Jackie Martin, Ethan Oberman, Jose Olivares, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Lydia McMullen-Laird. Our senior producers, Amber Hall, Sham Sundra and Vince Fairchild are engineers. Jay Cowett is our director and Polly Irungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant and Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry in for Tensina Vega. And this is The Takeaway.